Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, and this week's guest is writer of Paths of Power, Sorcerer, Charles Siegel. But we will not be talking about Paths of Power, Sorcerer, which so far is uh, the only complete treatment of sorcery in M20 that I know of, he said, question mark, because I know there are a lot of sorcery books on the Storyteller Vault. The other big one is The Sorcerer's Companion, which does a lot of good things. It has a lot of nice rituals and a different version of the path of chronomancy than I made up, but it doesn't, it isn't a full conversion to M to fit into M20. It's a supplement for Sorcerer Revised that works with M20, in my opinion, kind of, otherwise I wouldn't have written my project. The title of this episode will probably be some creative variant of Cool Places in the Umbra. My thought with this was, Mage the Ascension has a lot of cool-ass locations out there, and mages in general, to me, are fundamentally liminal characters. They get to go anywhere. They are the Spider-Man of the Old World of Darkness setting in Marvel continuity. Generally, magic people deal with magic stuff. People that are mutants deal with mutants, and people who are otherwise empowered deal with people who are otherwise empowered. So when you get, for instance, the Avengers dealing with mutants, that's usually notable and that's usually a crossover. When mutants are dealing with magic, that is also a crossover. There are a few characters that are exempt from this that get to go everywhere and see everything. One of those is Spider-Man, which is funny because Spider-Man isn't exactly the most potent of creatures to be crossing these boundaries, but still, they get to see any, see everything. And mages are kind of like that. It makes sense to list some cool-ass locations. Some of these are from mage, some of these are not. And for each of those, we're going to list what they are, what does it look like, how do you get there, what's there once you get there, and what's a plot hook. And we're just going to go back and forth. And with that, Charles, do you want to kick this off with Autochthonia? Let's start by saying in that crosses over with everything. Autochthonia, though it originates in mage books, gets a lot more detail in Exalted, which I believe you also have a podcast about. Yes, Systematic Understanding of Everything. We have two episodes on it. One is talking about the alchemical exalts, and we will eventually have one where we talk about Autochthonia itself. So... Autochthon is one of the primordials, one of the entities that is birthed into creation, which is the setting of Exalted, and is just kind of tooling around and makes stuff. In Exalted, reality doesn't really exist except around a primordial. Otherwise, you are just in the wild, this vast formless area filled with the wild energies of creation. Eventually, when a bunch of primordials get together, they need to basically come up with rules to govern reality that they can all agree on. And in the process, they create creation. They create gods to run creation. And the gods get tired. They are bound, though, to not rise up against the primordials. But there are no rules against creating a thing to overthrow the primordials. So the gods create the exalts. A bunch of gods get together and are talking about this and Autochthon kind of sees these people talking and Autochthon is like, hey, it looks like you're planning to overthrow the primordials. And all the gods are like, no, we would never do that. He's like, oh, that's too bad. I came up with this way of turning mortals into, a, into weapons to do so, just in case. And the gods are like, okay, maybe we let him in on this plan. Autochthon sees that this usurpation is not going to necessarily go well and Autochthon as a god always kind of felt shunned by the other gods one of the side plots is Autochthon is in love with either Gaia or Luna I can't remember which and those two are kind of like 
an OTP in Exalted, Gaia and Luna that is. Atakthan goes by the Well of Souls, picks up a couple million souls, picks up a whole bunch of his chosen folk, grabs a whole bunch of sparks, and then zooms out away from creation as his own side realm with millions of people on the inside of him to kind of just get away from creation while the usurpation is occurring. Odakthan goes to sleep and didn't quite bring all the resources needed to keep everything working. So Odakthan is slowly falling apart. And that is kind of the setting we get in Exalted. So Odakthonia is the inner body of a primordial god whose multi-part soul is entrusted with keeping him operational while he's zooming outside of creation. Yeah, so then we jump ahead some infinitely many years and a much, much narrower notion of what is of reality exists, the you know, the world of darkness. And in the late 1800s, the technocracy finds what's left of Autochthonia. This is mentioned in the Victorian Mage Manuscript. Uh, Indiegogo is going as we record. The technocracy thinks a machine realm, this is the best thing ever. It is not. Why not? To put it bluntly, spirits are hermit crabs. The corpse of Autochthon is now kind of in an antipodal, at an antipodal point. It's on the exact opposite side of the sun from the earth. And it's not completely empty. It, when the uh, technocracy gets there and a group of the analytical reckoners set up shop because their work is much easier there. How often do you find a horizon realm that seems tailor-made to you? They start working on building their computer. And that's when a basically a big spirit takes over the entire convention as it becomes Iteration X, tells them not to study spirit anymore, and starts really messing with messing them up in quite a lot of ways. The other reason a machine realm isn't terribly useful is it is hard to do research there because it would not be transferable outside. Like anywhere that a perpetual motion machine works is probably not going to give you useful information on how to create something that works on the mundane side of the gauntlet. But it's super useful if your goal is to just have a place where you can do ridiculous things and live there. And that's what a lot of Iteration X did. Autochthonia is yeah, a giant realm of machines. It doesn't respect any particular time period of machines. It's machines throughout the entire run of history and the future. So a group that likes inventing machine, inventing and building machines is just going to be fascinated by this place. They built their computer and, they tr and that's where they built it so that it would be able to make improvements to itself. And then after iteration, after iteration, after iteration, it achieved sentience or was possessed by the spirit. That's kind of left to the storyteller, uh, though it's strongly implied that it's the spirit. Autochthonia and the spirit that inhabited it may well be a big chunk of everything that is wrong with Iteration X in the modern world. So how big is it? Well, like, what does it look like if a character were to go there besides just saying Machine Realm? So Autochthonia is a world. Like, it is absolutely huge. I don't remember them ever actually specifying how large, but in order to really work with... I do math and physics a lot of the time, so... In order to be antipodal to the Earth, it has to be the size of the Earth. But instead of living on the surface, you live on the inside, which makes it much, much larger than the Earth in terms of living space. Think like a Death Star the size of the Earth. Only the super laser probably doesn't work because the place is run down except for where Iteration X has done repairs. Every kind of technology is going to be represented there, or at least every kind of machine from any era will be. So you might walk from one room where everything looks like it's out of the Star Trek reboot and into a room where it looks like it's out of the original series. And then in the next room, there's just the Antithikaira mechanism. And then the next room, there's an iPad. It's a weird place. 
for techno mages because if you go into a room that no one's been in before, you have no idea what kind of machinery is going to be in there. And why would characters go there? If you are in Iteration X prior to the Avatar Storm, that's the headquarters of your convention. If you need to talk to the leadership and email won't suffice, you go to Autochthon or Autochthonia. If you are aspiring to be part of the leadership, you want to be assigned to Autochthonia. It's where things happen within, within Iteration X before 1999. Afterwards, it, like almost every other Horizon Realm, pretty much disappear, disappears from mage continuity. If you take the Exalted backstory, there's no way that just the, that, ju that something as minor as the Avatar Storm could possibly destroy Autochthonia, considering how long it's existed and so on. So it's still out there. And I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Horizon Realm rating. Uh, you want to go and find the, lo the lost toys of Technomage's past, you can go there. You want to fight Threat Null, they're probably there. Personally, one of my favorite hooks for Autochthonia is you're there for you know any number of reasons. It's fair, as I said, it's fairly easy to get tech, to get like Iteration X, Society of Ether, and Virtual Adepts to want to play in a place where Paradox doesn't doesn't hate them at all. Like I, I tend to run Autochthonia as you cannot get Paradox for doing anything mechanical or machine oriented there. Yeah. It just the realm won't let it happen. The very, the very concept of paradox. Now you try to do hermetic high ritual magic, and Autochthonia will smack you for it. You're you're, you're going to be covered in attack geomids pretty fast. And I and I would treat say House Verdidius stuff as probably about the same level of vulgar as it is on Earth. You know, there's it's machiney enough. It'd be really kind of case by case. But once you're over there and you're investigating, Autochthonia has the potential to be very much like a traditional dungeon crawl, which is interesting because there's not actually many opportunities to do that in a way that makes sense in the mage setting. And even if you're playing before the Avatar Storm or without one. A bunch of iterators going into an unexplored uh, region, it's kind of like a dungeon crawl. There are unexplored regions that you could live anywhere on the entire volume of this thing. It's going to be a long time before they map it, assuming that it doesn't change over time on its own. Which it does, because the number of sides to it doubles periodically. The, the giant polyhedral chrome. It's interesting because we have like four dates of discovery. The Dalalaoshi identified it in 1068, and it was apparently closer then and in 1766 the Wulong and the Dalalaoshi fight and they lose contact with this place and then it's rediscovered in 1931 except for in Mage Revised where it is rediscovered by Tychoides in 1893 so if you want to just pick a date you're fine uh, it's also interested in that it is the Shenti of Stasis. It is one of the few cases where mages will directly interface with a manifestation of Weaver. Uh, the Shentis being the the regions in the near Umbra that, uh, or at least not beyond the the far horizon, that is governed by one of the three parts of the metaphysical trinity. And this is probably the best known of them. Yeah, I'm going to go with it's the best known. Yeah, I think mages inter would interact with this much more than the other than the others, simply because, well, it's the only one of the three where we have mages going and landing on it, in, and then going checking it out and setting up shop. Though honestly, I kind of love the idea of mages setting up shop on dynamism or entropy, but especially entropy seems a little bit trickier. Yeah, Malpheus is probably not a place that we want to set up shop. Although, like, yes, some of the Nefandi. yeah, some of the labyrinths go there, and the realm of flux is terribly handy in that it's one of the few places that can get rid of permanent paradox, which is a poorly thought out rule if you go over it. 
as I said, you can, so you can use the place for for essentially a dungeon crawl, which not that much in Mage does. So I've run several plots in Autochthonia. My favorite by far basically takes the they dug too deep concept that's pretty popular in fantasy literature and iteration x or explorers in the post avatar storm world are checking the place out seeing what's still there seeing if there's anything worth looting and they accidentally turn on the last alchemical the last alchemical exalt so you've got something from an age where power was the power level was substantially higher uh let's go with yeah that's a polite way of putting it I'm not talking more like even the most powerful, ridiculous, like this one, this person is a city kind of exalt, just like a guy. But this guy knows the secrets of the place and can definitely smack the mages around if they're not polite. I guess my last question is, how do you get there? The most obvious way is you go up and around the sun. Like this is one of the places that is described as described fairly regularly since the uh, technocracy found it as, you know, you get there by getting into a spaceship and going. Presumably there are portals to Earth like there are for most realms, but I don't remember how the uh, Wulong and the Daloloshi uh, got there, but the technocracy uses void ships. Yeah, the closest I could guess is the Dalaloshi uh, used to get there when it was physically closer. As Charles said, you can take a you could take a literal spaceship there. There's probably a few gates that uh, that are deep in iteration constructs, or a few others that could go there. I could see characters finding uh, a lost jade gateway or something. Or alternatively, if you really want to lean on the exalted connection, uh, they find an adamant gate of some sort, and they're like, "Where does this go?" And like suddenly, you're in that lost area of Onachthonia. Another thing is that I tend to like letting umbral travel in general be a bit weirder Mm -hmm. so that places that are thematically connected are actually connected. You can get thematic connections in weird ways. So like, I love just shoving um, gates into my games where they don't go to a specific place. They just go out and where you end up depends on what you bring with you. So an editor using that gate might just always go to Autochthonia, but someone else, maybe if they're thinking about a about some weird machine they were working on or carrying a weird machine with them, might end up there also. And it's important to note, it is a area controlled by the technocracy. It is not technocratic in and of itself. So it's not a place that was built by the technocracy. So it is is perfectly reasonable. There are other things that you could find there. It's a fun place. All technomages can go and can go and do ridiculous things there, and then forget about paradox, and go home, and then get smacked with it. And unlike Mecca, it's you won't necessarily be in the same kind of run and gun. If you're an Etherite and you show up at Iteration X controlled Autochthonia, they're not going to be happy, but you're also not walking into a concentration camp. And as of revised, uh, Autochthonia gets two key changes to it. One, Autochthonia was where the technocracy sent the members of what they referred to as the cult of the machine because they couldn't do any damage there. <laughs> they wouldn't mess up with their what they were doing on Earth. And also that once the Avatar Storm cut off Autochthonia, the spirit of Tool, the kind of the incarna that rules the realm, started building little technological ecosystems. So it became very, not quite biomechanical, but something closer to a ecosystem consisting of transformers, for lack of a better term, where you you would have machine food chains and such. So it lets you have that kind of weird fantasy techno sci-fi place, depending on if you want the Avatar Storm or how you want to depict Autochthonia. 
Another thing is that it is kind of implied that the iterators who were on Autochthonia are now the Autopolitans in Threat Null. If you're running Threat Null heavy plots, it might be worth it for your characters to make a trip to Autochthonia to try to deal with this at the source, you know, depend, depending on the tier of your game and what your characters are interested in doing. Yeah, the Autopolitans being kind of the, the dark uh, reflection, as it were. Uh, it's also interesting because uh, this is the place where characters could reasonably run into manifestations of Weaver if you use the werewolf cosmology in your games. I generally don't introduce that into Mage because I think Mage is Mage, but that's an option. The place I tend to like to set games in is I'm a big fan of the High Umbra as kind of being Mage's playground. There is that notional split. The low umbra is for wraith. The middle umbra is for werewolf. And the high umbra is for mage, vampire, and changeling. Screw you. You have your own weird zones in other places. One of my favorite places in the high umbra is the fortress of government, which is described as being a, a fallen epiphany. So you have the Vulgate, which is the realm of kind of mundane ideas, as it were. And then you have the spires, which lead up to the epiphanies, which represent all refined human thought definition of refinement is kind of interesting like i find it interesting that there is no area in the vulgate representing mathematics that is like explicitly given just because at this point math is something kind of everyone does in some way shape or form so to me that would be a fallen epiphany so i i can say that a storyteller's vault supplement that i am currently working on describes the platonic realm that makes sense the Fortress of Government has a bunch of different representations, and this is a place that very much changed between 2nd Edition and Revised. I don't know of any 1E references to the Fortress of Government, just because the 1E Umbra was weird and undescribed on purpose. It is located within the Vulgate, which is at least in my games, kind of represented as this giant Ur city that radiates in the two directions of time and culture. If you're in, say, a, a 6th century Aegean restaurant or something like that, you have four directions in which you can travel. You can travel towards modernity or further back in time, or you can travel away from the Mediterranean in one direction or along another part of the Mediterranean in another. So the four directions I generally have in the Vulgate are past, future, and then a geographic direction of some neighboring culture. So sometimes the compass has many points to it if, if a culture was enmeshed in world politics, depending on the time, and that changes. I feel like you're describing a place that has fractal dimensions. Oh yeah, very much so. It was It was very much... <laughs> informed by the way that the inner planes are presented in Dungeons and Dragons, where they are four-dimensionally infinite. So given that you are in the plane of water, there are six directions in which you can travel, but there are additional directions you can travel. Like you can you can go towards and away from the positive... Positive energy plane? Is it positive energy? Yeah. You can travel towards and away the positive energy plane. So that gives you two additional directions to travel, either po towards positive or towards negative. And in addition to that, you can travel towards the, the para-elemental planes. So you can move towards, what would it be, the plane of air or towards the plane of earth. So you have a bunch of extra directions you can travel in. And given any set of coordinates, you can move infinitely in the other set of them. So to enter the Fortress of Government, there are two ways of doing it. One is kind of from the ground. 
The other is from the air. From the sky, it is this massive multifaceted fortress that has just a tower of rooms that kind of go into the clouds. But coming from the top, the ceilings just seem to be made of clear glass. Like it is easy to see the full size of the fortress from the sky. If you approach it from the ground, it could be any representation of human collective power. It could be a ziggurat. It could be a Greek revival or modern brutalist structure. And its tallest points are located in the clouds. Whatever the cultural expectation of the manifestation of power is in that part of the Vulgate, there can be an entrance to the Fortress of Government. Even when you're in the Outlands, which to me is the area outside of the Vulgate between the spires, it is never more than a day away if you know where you are going. The The Fortress of Government itself, once you are inside, you are literally in the corridors of power. It is a infinite office complex with hallways of varying architectural styles across time and space with very small print on the doors indicating who what that room is used for. A lot of them are offices and you just see the the bustle of Umbrood going back and forth. This is a, a, a literal hub of power where the movers and shakers of the Vulgate get together and do things. Now, one of the questions is how much power do they have? For instance, if you spend weeks navigating it, you will eventually find the central chamber that can seat thousands that is never more than 10% full where the Monsignors and so on of the Umbral hierarchy plan what is going to happen in the Vulgate. The question is, is that something where the Umbrood are dictating the shape of the Vulgate, which then finds itself on the other side of the gauntlet, or is it strictly the opposite, where this is essentially a conversation talking about how the thought space of humanity is changing? My answer is it's both, where the Umbra can change the mundane world, and the mundane world can certainly change what's going on in the Umbra. This place is just has a, a constant flow of umbrood going through it. And the higher the status of the person, the closer they are to a historical figure. Gafflings are generally going to be unidentifiable and just be your, your most generic office workers. The gafflings may lend themselves to an archetype, whether it's the, the cigar-chomping boss or the court doyen or something like that. Just kind of any political figure you could pluck out of history that in a generic form all the way up to, I'm not going to say the place has Celestines running around, but a it is not unreasonable to run into FDR or Kinshi Wangdi or Shaka Zulu or any number of other historical leaders of some sort. And since in a lot of cases, military leaders are also political leaders implicitly, I think that they will also have preference. Uh, they will have uh, presence there. There are kind of two interpretations of the Fortress of Government. One is that it represents any time people come together to create something bigger than themselves, in which case it will have a lot of religious inflection to it. And another one is it is a representation of institutions created to amass personal power, which also may or may not have a religious aspect to it. But uh, you get to choose what government and what power means in this place. And and there are a bunch, a bunch of ways to put that. For most of human history, there has not been a separation between religious and non-religious power. Like in Europe, you have the divine right of kings for quite some time. Generally, because there is not that clean division between secular and religious authority, till mostly the modern world, you should definitely be finding popes hanging around just because they also rule a country. Mm -hmm. If you were looking in, say, a religion se section, you might run into Louis XIV 
or you might run into the Queen of England. She's still the head of the Anglican Church. It is very hard to make that distinction between secular and religious power for most societies across human history. Mm -hmm. Likewise, in a lot of cases, dividing between political and military power, where you would have a, yeah. a king regent who was also your your general or what have you, even if they had a uh, tactician or a strategian that they would pass over those operations to. Or, or perhaps commander in chief of the U.S. Uh, military. Yeah. Like th these divisions are still hard to make in the modern world where we try to make them a bit more often. Mm -hmm. The question of what happens there during the day in the Umbra, things kind of take on their, uh, in the high Umbra, take on their idealistic setting. This is uh, government functioning at its best. And at its night, it is just petty bureaucratic backstabbing and so on. And this is a place where people can very much get an idea of the gestalt of what is happening in a country. There will be a region of this building that is the umbral manifestation of Indian politics. If you want to see what's happening between the uh, Bharatiya Janata Party or Congress Party or what have you, there is an umbral reflection of it here, which will in some way show its true motives. It will take a lot of time. I like to think there are a lot of NWO people who are sneaking into here disguised as lower level functionaries. Maybe some of them have even become disembodied over time, but it's a, a good way to, to get that political information. If you go back to second edition, the Fortress of Government was a giant field of shit with white roses at the center of it, which felt real dark power to me. They don't tell you what the rose does, but that's a different interpretation. I don't find that one particularly interesting. That's just me. On the topic of, say, the New World Order going in, there's always the question of, in your game, does the world dictate the Umbra or does the Umbra dictate the world? Because if the Umbra dictates the world, the New World Order doesn't go there for information. They go there to do things. Yeah. And it's even more important to keep in mind that yeah, that's the thing that your that characters can then do. Like, if changing something in the Umbra changes the, the real world, even if it takes some time for the change to happen, if your characters want to destroy a political party, they can just go. They have to go in and they have to just really go to town. I guess murdering a bunch of spirits in the Umbra. But the act of murdering <laughs> a spirit is particularly hard because, assuming the idea yeah. persists in the mortal world, those spirits are going to come back. Um, oh yeah, none of this is going to be easy, but it is a route to doing dramatic to get, to getting the political change you want that may not be viable by doing things mundanely without getting thrown in prison yes <laughs> <laughs> Getting here is pretty straightforward since it is in the Vulgate. So enter the High Umbra and you will probably not be that far from the Vulgate. You can astrally project here. If you step sideways, you can literally walk there. The Vulgate, to me at least, is not very treacherous compared to other areas of the other worlds that you can enter. Like, it's pretty low on the killability index. <laughs> on the topic of getting here, and you mentioned you treat the High Umbra as the mage playground. One thing that I do to really emphasize that in games is astral projection is mind three for me. Instead of mind four? Yeah, I actually put telepathy at mind four because leaving your body seems easier than going into someone else's. Mm -hmm. But also flavor-wise, that means spirit three gets you into the middle umbra and mind three will let you go astral. And if you want to tell, tell me that mages spend a lot of their time astral projecting into the high umbra, it should be a thing that starting characters can do. Yeah. I also create portals to it in any centralized place of great power. So the Forbidden City, Axum in Ethiopia, uh, the Hague, 
will all somewhere in them have a door that if you get the right kind of lost will essentially be a shallowing into the fortress of government. I like this in that it allows random petty functionaries in the world's governments to actually be umbrewed. Kind of feel like a consequence of that could be that a lot of the gafflings and jagglings just running around in the fortress of government are just disembodied people who got lost one day and never came back. Yeah, uh, which allows an opportunity for actual satire or for utter horror, depending on what your view of that is going to be. Um, And the tone of your game, of course. Yeah, there are a bunch of ways to get there for me. Uh, Plot threads. It's, to me, the perfect place to learn a six dot of leadership, subterfuge, etiquette, or politics. Uh, In my games, the fifth dot is generally uh, achievable through mortal means, and the sixth dot you can come through supernatural means. Uh, It can be provided by a spirit patron, time in the other worlds, magical study and practice. There are occasional mortals that will have a sixth dot in something, but those are are pretty rare. Your Helen of Troy is the example of the six dot in appearance. Don't get me started on vampire Helen being having eight dots in appearance. I don't even want to think what that is. Although we do get the rules in Mummy One E, which requires succeeding in a stamina check to literally hold yourself back from pursuing this person. So so that exists. That kind of makes sense for Helen of Troy, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I I get it. It is also one of the places where very potent umbrood are just there. Getting in contact with Ares in the middle Umbra to get strategy information is going to be very dangerous, but talking to a a political mastermind in the fortress of government is going to be much more tractable to me, partially because the means won't be so violent. It will probably take time because of the ideas represented to me by the fortress of government in most cases it tends to be the social representation of power as opposed to the military manifestation necessarily of power like in my head the fortress of government does not necessarily have like nukes although that could also be thematically appropriate depending on what kind of game you want so it it, it to me is a safe place to meet some very high level members of the various courts one thing related to the fortress of government possibly having nukes, there's no reason that you can't also have a, an epiphany of the military industrial complex that's next door. Yeah. Yeah. Very closely tied ideas that uh, depending on how high you go up, you can launch off into that, that epiphany, epiphany, sorry. It can also be used to amass historical information. So one of the things that we find out that happens at the fortress of government is periodically they reenact great moments in political history, whether that be Lincoln's second inaugural, whether that be, the assassination of Julius Caesar. It is there and it is periodically staged. So I I could very much see someone trying to retrieve information about that. And I see no reason why key magical events also would not be there. So if you needed to research something about uh, a a past... The Grand Convocation? Yeah, the Grand Convocation. (laughs) The War of Concordia, which was different than the Concordia War, because one of them is Changeling and one of them is... uh, But whatever, the the last moments before Doizatep blew up i think there is very much a region there that may be inhabited by maybe some of the actual archmages <laughs> yeah some, something that amuses me is the idea of thinking about just how many places in the umbra can you go to meet a porthos the record for the character that to me is in the most places i think is hypatia who exists in at least three different umbrae yeah, there's there's probably a lot of uh, a lot of the porthoi running around if you want to investigate what the heck those roses are that were mentioned in second edition awesome so you mentioned you mentioned the new world order are there any other uh factions of mages that you see spending a lot of time in the fortress of government 
to me, there there are a couple cases where people will go there. Um, I see the syndicate being present there as a way of focus testing messages about political changes in the rare cases that they want to do that. I think people inter- interested in complicated human um, social systems would go there. So maybe someone like the chaoticians or the more socially inclined version of the verbena, uh, the celestial chorus, because of the close tie between purportedly sacred and temporal power. And those are those are the kind of the big ones that I've had there before. Do you have any that you add to that? Oh, yeah. For, uh, for me, the Wulong live there. Admittedly, this is about human power, but I kind of merge political power of different sorts into it. And if you want to physically attend the celestial bureaucracy, this seems like a natural place to put it. Uh, because to me, they are very tied to the Yellow Springs, in my opinion. So I always had them as having contact with the Loa Umbra. But yeah, that certainly makes sense that there would be a manifestation of it. Uh, pardon me. And the other thing is, to me, the, the, the proper celestial bureaucracy I depict as a spire more so than anything else. But that's that's me. But yeah, that make that totally makes sense. As far as people who, and even if you aren't talking about the celestial bureaucracy, it's not like the Wulong don't manipulate the Chinese bureaucracy constantly for thousands of years. Yes. To me, I kind of like after the Chinese revolution that like no mage has ruled China. They're just all in Hong Kong and think everyone else is running China. Exactly. And they've actually both begun to be demon worshippers. As you do. Well, specifically, the, we're talking about the Wulong and the Wu Kang. The Kashayana are still around. Are still around. They're not having a great time, what with you know Tibet and all. Mm-hmm. But if you want to pick, you know, an an old Chinese group that might be running China, you got to look right at the Dalo Luoshi. So, where do you want to talk about next, Charles? I said before that the technocracy seems to just keep finding horizon realms that are kind of perfect for them. They sort of learned the lesson, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, when they really, really should be checking those teeth. We talked about Iteration X with finding the corpse of a primordial and setting up shop inside. So the Voyagers did something similar. Mage has been a bit inconsistent about how far off of Earth the Void Engineers have explored, with the original Technocracy Void Engineers kind of implying that they have explored a substantial fraction of the galaxy, which... To me, strange credibility just because the galaxy is so big yeah. that even one percent of the galaxy is something that we're not going to be able that even if if we had faster than light travel, we wouldn't be doing for centuries. And I'm willing to grant that the void engineers have faster than light because in made you can teleport. But one thing that that all editions do seem to agree on is that the void engineers have gotten to the next star over Alpha Centauri, and when they got there, there's some stuff. There is something that at least superficially resembles a Dyson Sphere over there. So a Dyson Sphere is a big sphere made out of, made by a civilization to capture all of the energy from the star that it's around. Don't ask how they said that this is both at Alpha Centauri and that we can see Alpha Centauri in the sky. That is not explained. I'm going to assume it has something to do with the uh, strange lensing that is introduced and revised to explain why you don't see horrors in the night sky. It is listed as being translucent <laughs> in 2E. <laughs> Sorry. A translucent Dyson sphere is literally worthless. Um, <laughs> a, a transparent one would be worthless, but if it's... If it's... Oh, okay. Translucent, maybe. Yeah. So you can see the star inside, but also they, again, have a realm that is orders of magnitude larger than the Earth. I think I did the math out. On, on this one, because it's easy math as opposed to Autochthonia, which you have to start making judgments about hallway height. And in order for the cop to make sense, this Dyson Sphere has a surface area that's 
roughly a million times the, si the surface area of Earth. So it is another place where you will never run out of weird things that the mages have never seen before because there's just so much of it. Mm -hmm. Like people talk about the exalted map being big and then mage has autochthonia and the cop. The Voyageneers were exploring space. They got to the next star over. And you got to be really suspicious because this is the next star over. This is not like some randomly some random star that they found after a long search. The very first place they go, they find a Dyson sphere. It seems abandoned. And their thought is, guess it's ours now. You know, they build their research bases. They use it as a staging point to go further out. It's where the Voyageneer leadership, DCC, lives, including Tychoides, their Arcmaster, who previously appeared in Discovered Autochthonia. So maybe just Tychoides doesn't think that finding random megastructures in space is weird. Maybe it's just like him personally thought it was okay. But that's where the Voyageneers are headquartered until 1999 when the cop is cut off. As with Dyson spheres in general, you live on the inside on the inside of it, facing the sun. There's an artificially created uh, night cycle, uh, so the sun's not just shining at all times. As well set up as any Dyson sphere is going to be. And one important point, which we'll come back to when we talk about what you can do there and, and plot hooks, is that the star is a big giant source of quintessence that's out that's not on Earth. That's pretty clearly stated, even which. Pointing out that there are sources of quintessence off of Earth changes the mage cosmology in a few ways. One of the things in 1E that is presented repeatedly is the reason everything outside of Earth wants to get to Earth is to get the juice. But then in Void Engineer, they're like, oh, by the way, they figured out a way to power their engines based on the interstellar medium and like rocks they find. And then we have this thing where it's like, oh, by the way, all stars are massive quintessence fountains. And you're like, uh, this changes things. The way I usually play that is that the most diverse and delicious quintessence is on Earth. So that still gives a motivation to come in. Mm -hmm. But things that need quintessence to survive can still exist because there are sources of the upper. They're just like eating gruel. Mm -hmm. If you've been eating oatmeal for every day for a thousand years, you're still going to kind of want to go into, go to Earth and have an apple. But also like sticking nodes on other planets and, and having stars be giant quintessence uh, sources you can get some cool things like uh, in my games, Olympus Mons on Mars, the highest the highest mountain in the solar system, is not only a decent uh, quintessence source because it's a, it's a big node. It is also metaphysically tied to Mount Olympus in Greeks, and you can go to the High Umber to talk to the Greek gods from there, and all sorts of stuff is connected like that. Just talking about other sources of quintessence off of Earth. The COP, of course, has a whole star, which is an entirely different order of magnitude. So uh, uh, what do you do there? So as I said, the Void Engineers do use it as a staging point for expeditions further into the deep universe. They do R&D there. Not R&D for Earth, R&D for space, because they are in space. So that helps. And... It's where their leadership lives. So again, so like Autochthonia, if you are a Void Engineer looking to move up the ranks, you're going to spend some time at the COP. But the COP is much harder to get to if you're not a Void Engineer. So one plot thread I have used is that... So the, there's the question of why do people disembody if they're in the Umbra for three months? I tend to treat it as because they are far away from a, like a stable patch of reality with quintessence streams. So... Horizon realms, when they have quintessence streams from Earth or other places, are a lot more stable in my games. But it means that all the people at the COP 
they are cut off from Earth at, by the Avatar Storm, but they are not just, you know, turned into spirits by it. So if you're running a post-Avatar Storm game and you have some kind of threat, maybe threat null, that you need some powerful Void Engineers to help you out with, a quest to get to the cop that could actually bear fruit. You can't really do much in the way of space stuff if you have anything resembling hard science fiction like the technocracy sometimes represents and you have a three-month timer. Yep. You need, you need to do something to reconcile those problems. And my solution is I make the three-month timer easy to get around if you're clever. So do you have reasons for traditionalists to go there or at least non-technocrats? Most of the traditions, there's not very much reason for a verbena or a dream speaker to leave Earth in a way that means that they might never come back. They go, they go to like going to the umbral realms that are very closely related to Earth is one thing, but going to another star, as far as being a dream speaker or a verbena, there's not that much reason. A dream speaker or a verbena might still want to go to space because space is cool. The traditions that I see that I see at the COP most easily are the Society of Ether and the Order of Hermes. It's said in a few places in the books, or at least implied, that once you get far enough away from Earth, your allies are whatever humans you find. So I would say a tradition mage who gets that far is not going to be shot on sight if they show up at the cop looking for food and a place to sleep. It'll be more like, oh, hey, what's, what's going on on Earth? Haven't heard from anyone in a while. What are you out here doing? You know, come drink with us. Yeah, yeah, we might be enemies on Earth, but out here the bosses aren't looking and there's, al and there's alien monstrosities that want to eat our souls. So maybe you're not the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and speaking of the alien monstrosity thing, the cop has been depicted as having been attacked before, where basically yes. uh, the, the Nefandi had to be fended off with these giant particle cannons that took advantage of the of the spray off of off of the star so if you want to present an abandoned cop again this becomes a place where you could have the largest dungeon crawl humanly possible um and as far as the the more mystical groups one of the things that's interesting about the cop is spiritual magic is heavily tied to kind of the order of our solar system so i could certainly be see a very curious dream speaker interested in going to an area where there's a lot of material present like there's a lot of matter around but not necessarily the same associations and on the and and meet the incarna of another star um, well uh, especially throw in the fact that we now know that there are planets in this in the alpha centauri system mm -hmm. and three stars and you get you get a very different stellar cosmology than you do for Earth with its one star and you know eight and a half planets. Yeah, and on the Verbena side, there is going to be completely different alien ecosystems that I could certainly see some Verbena being interested in, as well as the fact that, like in the book, it talks about while the whole sphere is equally irradiated by light, as you get further away from the axis of rotation of it so you have most of the human inhabitants are along this central belt which is under um, centripetal force to create earth-like gravity as you get further away from that the gravity drops and suddenly you still have an area that has notionally oxygen and light and probably water but is dealing with one-tenth the gravity and i could see a giant space bugs yeah i could see a verbena having to deal with an ancient quest laid upon them in that you need to find a tree that is 10,000 leagues tall and the person being like well I can spend a lot of time tromping around the middle umbra and probably have to fight giants 
or <laughs> there's probably one on the cop. <laughs> you're, ma- you're making me think that the cop uh, could could use a you know Horizon Stronghold of Hope level treatment where just like. It turns out that everyone's on the cops somewhere. They're just so far apart they didn't notice. Yeah, again, like Charles back of the envelope roughly a million times. When I looked it up before, 550 million times. But still, relatively yeah. close when you're talking on that order. There, there's that, space. Yeah, I, I factored in the fact that it's got to be in the habitable zone, which is oh, much okay. closer because it's a dimmer star. Got it. Look, I'm, I'm working on an astrophysics for mage uh, book, so I've been thinking... <laughs> I, I've been working on it for a long time. I've mentioned it on this podcast several times. If Sol so had a Dyson yeah, Sphere. Yeah, had a Dyson Sphere. Yeah, but I think Alpha Centauri A is quite a bit dimmer than the sun, so you lose a fa- you lose a factor of, of somewhere between 500 and 1,000. Nice. If you want to run into the refuges of a, the, the remains of an alien civilization, it's certainly here. Uh, how do you get here? Oh. Well, again, you go up. But only from the southern hemisphere, because ha- it actually is a specific place in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Like Alpha Centauri is not visible from the northern hemisphere; it is below the plane of the ecliptic from the perspective of Earth. So, also, if you're talking about getting there, it's a good way to take your mages and take them to like Brazil or Sub-Saharan Africa or Australia as a launching point. If you want them to kind of just be going straight there instead of you know having to slingshot around, slingshot around in order to go start, stop going up and start going down. Uh, so that gives you an excuse to go to some places on Earth that your mages might not go to very often. But yeah, it is another one of those places where the easiest way to get there is by void ship or ether ship. But again, it would not function very well if there were not some portal somewhere. Mm-hmm. Autochthonia has the advantage that it is a it is kind of a thematically defined realm, so you can find things that are thematically related to it to find portals. The cop is not that. I think the only portal I've ever put to the cop was it was buried under the the birthplace of the historical Copernicus. The cop is really useful if you want to do something that's really alien and doesn't tie well to concepts on earth which means that it's also harder to get there from earth because natural portals aren't going to form the one place i could think of of having a portal that would get to there or something like it would be the the photographic plates of the harvard observatory which was one of the Mm. first mass surveys of it and there are just these this uh half a million glass frames that were taken. And if ever I needed a, a number of objects that thematically tied me to space, it would probably be there. And it gives you a chance to break into Harvard. Uh, other fun places to break into if you want thematic connections to space as a whole are the Air and Space Museum in DC. It's easier to get to the moon there because you can just like go into a lunar lander and step out on the moon if you know what you're doing. And of course, there's there's the various worldwide launch sites like Cape Canaveral. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that we hadn't mentioned really in the previous two, to me, the COP is actually relatively easy to get to by shortcuts through other parts of the Umbra. Hmm. So there's the ethereal reaches, which are kind of a microcosm of space. It's one of those places that werewolves like to go. I talked about it in detail with Josh Heath on Werewolf the Podcast in the episode on Rage Across the Heavens. If there's a place that makes the distance between Earth and you know Neptune fairly short, that same place is going to make the distance between Earth and Alpha Centauri uh, at least a lot shorter than it would be otherwise. Uh, another place that I allow people to use as a shortcut if someone suggested it to me is the Continuum Orrery. What is the Continuum Orrery? So an orrery is basically a model of the solar system that is supposed to be, you know, largely accurate in terms of things like 
revolution around the sun speed for the planets and so and so on. They're really, really cool. And the continuory is one that lives in the Umbra. And you can do all sorts of planetary nonsense, astrological nonsense. And I allow you to use it for, for space travel. This is actually the route that I would recommend for a hermetic to get off-world. Go to the Continuum Orrery and then use the sympathetic connection between the near-perfect representation of the thing and the thing to, to open your own temporary portal. Nice. And it's one of two Orrery that we get in Mage that I know of. The other being the Orrery of Madame de Bellestorth. So, uh, yep. Yeah, that, that one's in a toy box, right? Yep. Yeah. It, so one's a wonder and the other is a realm and actually, I would allow you to use the Wonder to travel if you want, mm-hmm. but, you know, you have well, to get it. The thing that's interesting about the Wonder is it is listed as having contain it contains several things that scientists haven't found yet. And as far as breaking into the Air and Space Museum, I think the Udvar-Hazy Annex may be easier. And it's a little bit more spacious if you want to take, like, the Space Shuttle Discovery there or fly a Concorde there. So that's just my recommendation as uh, if you want to get there in style. <laughs> If you're the sort of person who could use that that sympathetic connection, you walk into the into a lunar module, and then you step out on the moon. You know, bring your own spacesuit. Yeah, BYOSS. Uh, as I said, they lost communication with the cop. That's why in Void Engineers Revised, instead of being run by DCC, Void Engineers are run. Uh, I forget the I forget the name, but the uh, the extinction level event monitor people instead of worrying about dimensional science being the fundamental thing they're worried about trying to avoid human extinction which also a good thing for the void is yours to worry about i like that there's someone in mage worrying about what if something shows up to wipe out humanity we should probably be ready for that oh the existential threat directory uh, directory yes okay the etd oh, yeah the admiralty okay got it uh, another thing that the cop gives you is it gives you your place for weird space opera yeah it gives you a place to have material unobtainium it is an amazing place to lay low for a while yeah just don't try to lay low from the void engineers there uh so there, there, there are millions of square miles that the void engineers have never seen but especially if you look at revised and they use void correspondence they can still find you yeah if they're looking you can have that weird exploration chronicle and place an entire strange civilization that is just colonies, uh, sentient colonies of bees as emergent intelligences if you want to and have it have a sci-fi flavor instead of a fantasy flavor. It has infinite material resources seemingly because of its, its functionally. Scale. Yeah. Yeah. And you could go the other way where it has nigh infinite energy, but because this is a constructed Dyson sphere, it's running low on something. So you could be mage space traders who act to like move things about this wildly large area. As I'm sure everyone has gotten by now, I do a lot of games that go into space. I use the cop regularly on the they're running low on something. There's a lot of good sci-fi for that. One thing that I have done is that life on the cop is actually not very friendly to human life, not because it's hostile, but because of there's a thing in chemistry called chirality, the um, handedness of molecules. Mm-hmm. Funny thing about Earth, all the all all of the building blocks of life, the amino acids, have one handedness. When processes in nature seem to make them equally with both. So I've had a game where the cop was running out of food that could be eaten by humans. You're surrounded by living things that look like things that you could eat. But every single one of them will screw you up if you try to eat them because the proteins are wrong. The player character's goal was to figure out how to either reliably get food to the cop when 
travel was a lot harder than it, than it had been before 99, or how to transform the life there into something that humans could eat. Weird sci-fi premises love it. Uh, I've, I've also used that as a uh, paradox backlash for some weird correspondence effects. Mm-hmm. Just make a character the wrong handedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, which on the plus side would also make them immune to all known infection. And most normal poisons wouldn't really work on them very well either because their body wouldn't interact with them in any real way. Uh, yeah, it would depend on the nature of the poison. For instance... Yes, yes. Um, uh, it, it, it was easier to just rule all of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your character would still probably be affected by cyanide. <laughs> uh, well, yes, that's that's a pretty simple molecule. Yeah. Get in there, chemistry degree. But like snake, but like snake venom. Yeah, yeah, probably not. <laughs> so the next place I'd like to talk about are the far shores. So what are the far the far shores? So the far shores in the layout of the underworld, it goes something like there is the shroud separating the dark penumbra from reality um and within mage even if you use the uh vidare mortuum you are not technically in the penumbra the dark penumbra you have not technically crossed the shroud unless you use entropy to do so or have died those are kind of the the two ways to to go outside of it once you cross the shroud into the shadowlands you can then go down a layer into the tempest below the tempest you have the labyrinth and between below the labyrinth you have oblivion to get to the far shores when stygia was being kind of set up or when charon was doing charon stuff in the way way back a whole bunch of ferrymen the group of people that were kind of tasked with overseeing the dead and overseeing wraiths started exploring the tempest and they found a bunch of these islands that they kind of set up bases in the far shores then became areas where different ferrymen were kind of setting up little colonies that were focused on transcendence which is the idea where a wraith can deal with all of the things that keep them attached to their mortal life and and move on without facing oblivion. So theoretically, the two end states that you have as a rate is eventually you get consumed by oblivion, your shadow takes over and you're given into your dark urges, or you reach transcendence, which is the state where Wraith accepts their death and moves out of the underworld for whatever is beyond it. And it's kind of implied to be a good thing. While these ferrymen were exploring, they found these islands out there and kind of set up bases. And each of them would set up one kind of geared towards a different afterlife. The problem was there was nothing preventing those ferrymen, those guides, from they themselves falling to corruption. So you have the idea of the Paradise of the Fishers, which was based on a early Christian version of heaven that really turned into a gateway to hell when the person running it fell to their dark shadow that the angels and goods there are actually just people who have been remade through moliate and intimation and people are under constant torture and other kind of bad things a bunch of those ferrymen underwent what was called the ritual of severance which separated their shadow from their psyche which prevents you from being able to fall from your shadow and they were able to pursue their goal of transcendence. The problem was that Stygia 
doesn't know the difference. So if someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian, I want to go there. They're like, okay, yeah, go to the, go to the paradise of the fishers where they are consigned to essentially torment for the rest of eternity, as opposed to some of the other ones, which may not have fallen yet. The underworld is interesting. It is presented in at least three different places in mage. Uh, one, you have the afterlife of the underworld of the, the tempest where most raids kind of live, either that or the Penumbra, the Shadowlands. You have these far shores, which are also there. You have the astral areas that also have heaven and hells to them. And then you have the Shenti of Entropy, which at least has the hell side. One could argue that there is probably some Edenic-like area or heavenly manifestation of the Flux, which is pretty great. I don't know if that would work notionally, but yeah, there are a bunch of different places that kind of seem after life e in mage and sometimes you have a person in multiple places for instance hypatia it exists both at the library in the high umbra as well as the library in stygia and you're like oh which one's the real one there's also a hypatia in the middle umbra i think in the legendary realm but i, I don't quite remember that one there are these regions that take on the the heaven or hell aspects of the appropriate places. Like if you're Altaic and your character is pursuing uh, entrance into Ukma, you would transform into a bird in an unending bright field and the souls of the dead fly over in perfect freedom, contemplating their connection to nature. And that seems like a good thing, like of the things that can happen to you once you become a wraith. What do I think is interesting about them? It, they, they give a visage of literal heaven or and some of the reasons that you might wind up there, you get blown away by a storm during an Agama sojourn. And maybe you're a euthanatoy and you're either stuck there or you need to rescue someone who has been uh, taken there. You could have a dead character that turned into a wraith that has vital information that you need that you now need to say, hey, this person is pursuing moving on. Is it okay if I drag them back into mortal activities to try and talk to them and get this bit of information I need, which I think is interesting. Like, is what I need enough to push back this wraith's attempt at transcendence? It could be a, a plain old search and rescue where you have an umbrood or another spirit that has been caught up in the underworld politics that you need to get back. Or you can have a character that has made a deal with a mad ferryman, thinking that it was a demon or another spirit patron, and their avatar has been uh, trapped in one of these areas using some sort of weird arcana that arcanoi that the uh, that a wraith would have access to. I like the fact that they are very anchored in human culture, but they are weird and strange. They are hard to get to. The odds of you being able to call on other wraith magely contacts is quite low. And magic in the underworld usually doesn't go as you planned. So it kind of forces a somewhat mundane way of, of getting your way through. And they're uh, kind of one of the areas of Wraith that never got a huge amount of detail to it. So you can kind of make a lot of stuff up and not feel too bad about it. As for the literal process of getting there, uh, the Agama Sojourn would probably be the most straightforward. You need Entropy 4 to bypass the ban created by the Shroud, uh, Life 2 or 3 to not stick out like a sore thumb or to keep you on the cusp of death, and Spirit 3 to do the actual stepping sideways. Once you're in the Underworld to get there, you could use a Wraith with Argos. Uh, you could take a remarkably hazardous boat ride across the Sea of Shadows. You could use a lot of correspondence. Good luck with that, John. If you want to take your characters on a literal trip through Hell, that's an option. I get the sense that I spend uh, as much time in the underworld as your characters spend in space. <laughs> yeah, that seems 
reasonably accurate. The Umbra is so large, every game is going to have the part of it you go to and the 99% of it that you never think about. Yeah. Yeah, if we do this again, I will commit to no sci-fi realms at all. But needless to say, for listeners, if you like this tour through, uh, tell us and we'll certainly do another one. This episode will probably shorten down to a little over an hour, which is where I kind of like things. Uh, uh, Charles, for the places that you have mentioned, where can you find more information? Autochthonia appears in... It actually usually gets at least a mention in the Mage Core books. And in uh, the Iteration X, uh, Technocracy Iteration X, and, and less so in Convention Book Iteration X, because that's revised and everything was cut off then. But Autochthonia doesn't actually have a single place where there's like a really detailed write-up of it. It's kind of parceled out in a million little bits. Whereas the cop, you will find in the Voyage in your books, and you will find in... I believe it's discussed in both Book of Worlds and Infinite Tapestry. Not to be confused with the new cop, which is not a Dyson Sphere, is not around Alpha Centauri, and is perfectly reasonable. But if you want to go to the cop, you don't want perfectly reasonable. You want ridiculous and over the top. Yeah. As I've said a few times, I am writing a thing that is going to contain more and more coherent and more like coherent in the sense of all in one place information about both of them. That would be nice. Uh, f- for me, the Fortress of Government is mostly represented in Infinite Tapestry. We get a little bit more of it in Ascension because that book just kind of has a little bit of everything in it. The Far Shores, the best reference for that would probably be. Uh, I should have. I should have figured this. I want to say Tempest. I want to say Sea of, of Shadows. Shadows for Wraith. Yeah, uh, it, probably Sea of Shadows. End of Empire has a lot of information on what the ferrymen are up to, as well as their relationship yeah. with the, the the various entities. Uh, End of Empire has has kind of functionally got the uh, ferryman guild book yeah. in it as part of it. So, uh, anything else before we before we roll? Space is good for mage because ascension means go up. Uh, death is good for mage because you're dealing with entities that were once human and are vastly more relatable than what you will likely encounter in any of the other umbrae. <laughs> And we will have links to Charles' recent work in our show notes. If you click on there, we get a we get a little bit. Charles gets a a, a bit more, and uh, and everybody wins. Uh, Charles, thanks so much for joining us again. Always. This has been Mage the Podcast, and yes, I've started to moisturize. Thank you so much for noticing. The show is made possible by our executive producers, who, in no particular order, are Ryan Kendi, Ian, Jay Sunsern, Dennis Osborne, Neil Patterson, Christopher Phillips. Nikita Klamanov, Leslie Weatherstone, Garga Lenoir, Guy Conan-Stewart, Berto, Ryan Hilton, Jason Vines, Ralph Scheinhammer, Alexander Gorton, Stefan Carton, Dan Svensson, Josh Heath, Under Silverplatz, Jenna F., Josh H., Bryce Perry, William Martin, Michael Parker, Andy, Michael Creedel, Josh Goulden, Isabella Castillo, William Connolly, Andrew Edelstein, Brendan Morrill, Christopher Zack, John Horton, John Magnuson, Entropy Prime, and special thanks to Buck Farmer, Oracle of slightly nicer than normal but not entirely impressive pool cues, and to Christopher Phillips, Oracle of snap bracelets that secretly contain within them the entire text of the Bhagavad Gita represented in ASCII art. Our patron shout-out this week is to Ryan Hilton, who reminds you to have your characters be genre-savvy. If your character is in a casino, make sure that they remember the pissed bosses are always watching, it's bad luck to count your money while at the table, that there are important differences between Punto Banco and Kemen Defer variants of Baccarat, and to remember if time-traveling, the two-card Macau variant called Victoria was illegal in Russia during the 19th century. You too can become an executive producer at patreon.com slash the podcast. 
I'll be putting out a preview of a 16,000 word update to Ascension's landscape in the coming weeks. So if you'd like to see it, please think of supporting us. If not, that's totally cool too. I appreciate that you're listening. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. If you like us, please tell a friend or review us on a platform of your choosing. I think I'm going to start reading reviews soon. Some of them are very nice, and I have a very large ego. Also, go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now, go change reality. Bye.